building rapport is a huge thing for sure. We've been around Ralph long enough that like we could hop on a call and small talk goes on for days because we actually care about each other. And we've built this relationship where it's like, we can have these conversations about kids and life and guitars and whatever it may be, mustaches. We can have those conversations as we're getting into like the real meat of the shoot. And I think that helps a lot. Being able to break the ice is a huge thing and that interview style definitely helps that. This is the Customer Acquisition Show, the podcast that helps you turn complete strangers into repeat customers and grow your business. Hello and welcome to the Customer Acquisition Show. I am Tom Meredith, the VP of Marketing here at Tier 11. And today I'm joined by Daniel Green. We've been working here at Tier 11 for like five years and this is a topic that is something we've spent way too much time talking about. And it's probably like a five hour episode because we could talk about it all day. And that is remote content creation. So for anybody who's not aware, like Tier 11 has always been a remote digital advertising agency. We have about 70 employees on, I think, six different continents at this point, all spread around the world. We like to say that Tier 11, the sun never sleeps because there's always somebody on working. And for a creative team, that's always provided a big challenge for us. It's easy to edit in your dark little room by yourself, but getting the actual content has been a challenge that we've had to work through. So I think today we're just going to talk about some of the things that we've figured out, some of the things we've tried and didn't work. So Daniel, I am happy to have you here and chat about that. Yeah, happy to be here. Glad you got your mustache on point today. Yeah, I'm growing it out for a 70s party. So I'm sure I have to shave the instant that party's over. Yeah, your wife's probably going to bring a razor for you. Drive home. Although she did encourage me to have the mustache when we got married. So all of our oh. wedding photos have a sweet mustache. <laughs> well, maybe not sweet, it's kind of sparse, but a mustache nonetheless. <laughs> it was visible. Yeah. <laughs> so you work on the marketing team now and... We do a lot of content creation, probably more than we can realistically handle. Like, (laughs) (laughs) where should we start? How do we approach content? Like you said, we've been here five years. I think for me, it's like five years in four weeks or something like that. I'll hit five years. And it's always been a challenge because even if our team wasn't remote, our clients are always somewhere else too. So it's kind of always been a juggling act when it comes to gathering content and Different customers have different ways of doing things. But internally, we have a team of editors, designers, creative strategists and stuff just talking about our creative team specifically. And we're all spread out, like you mentioned. So it it has always been a chore. But thinking through our marketing department and what we're doing these days, we're really focusing a lot on social content. So that means if we want to be able to leverage any algorithms whatsoever, we've got to have consistent stream of content coming out. So that's where we have found ourselves probably the past year of like, how in the world do we do this? If we drove for a day straight, we could make it to each other. (laughs) The east side of Arizona. Yeah, we could meet at the Grand Canyon or something. So we're not remotely close. I think the person closest to me is about three and a half hours away. So there are a lot of variables involved. But the thing that we've probably tried to focus on a lot is intentionality, especially when it comes to shooting with Ralph Burns, our CEO and founder of Tier 11. So we have a standing shoot with Ralph every Friday. It's booked usually three to four hours a block there. The nice thing is Ralph has his own video setup. He's got lights. He's got a good camera. He's got a room that he dubbed his studio with a chalkboard wall. He's got a nice wood wall in it now. He could set up at his desktop. So we're very lucky and I'd say blessed to have have a CEO who's pretty in tune with what is needed on his end. So typically the way it works is we actually have a shoot with him in like three hours, I think. We do it every Friday. So he'll have his setup ready to go, lights on, camera ready. And he has an Elgato that he plugs into his camera or into his computer, runs his camera through that. And then what we can do is actually get on a platform like Riverside or even a Zoom call, anything like that. And he'll be able to show us his shot from his camera. So from there, we just make sure his shot's good. We obviously like content's ready to go and stuff like that. But once his shot's good, we kind of run it as if we were in the room with him, except we're just a computer screen. So if we need to feed him lines or discuss lines or topics or 
anybody has questions, we're actually kind of in the room with him while he could shoot from there. You know, it's all a process of uploading and downloading. Yeah. I know that it's kind of we are, have different challenges now from when we were on the client side. So the client side, we would hardly ever get new content. We'd always be cutting up old stuff and always trying to get the brands we were working with to shoot new stuff. We'd give them ideas. And because we weren't like controlling the production, it was often a little bit challenging. But now we have the opposite where Ralph will shoot anything we tell him to. And we're just always trying to catch up in, in the editing bay. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. No, the client side is a very different thing. As you mentioned, some clients have the ability to shoot stuff, others don't. So then it becomes a matter of, okay, well, how can we get stuff? And I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but we've shot stuff ourselves, probably both of us. I know a few others on the team have shot stuff themselves. We've sent products off, had products sent to us, got photos, videos, however we need to. There is this element whether it's client content or internal tier 11 content where it's like, just find a way to get it done. And we do. <laughs> so Yeah, we always do figure out a way to get it done. It's just always new challenges. And going back to the setup with Ralph a little bit, I think that's probably something a few people have developed, particularly in agencies on how to work remotely, especially through the pandemic. But getting into the nuts and bolts a little bit, Ralph just redid his room and he spent quite a bit of effort. I think he was using a lot of Tom Breeze's guidance for like setting up shots, lighting. And if you're setting up a remote shoot with somebody, they're kind of like a one-man band. They have all the gear. How do you coach them through the right way to set it up? Yeah, that can be challenging in and of itself because outside of the equipment, there are also a lot of variables that are really hard to figure out. So things like if they're in a house or an office that's off of a street, what's the road noise like? You're probably not going to pick that up over a Zoom call. So that's tough. So there's a lot of conversation that has to happen. And eventually getting, you know, if you refer to your talent, I guess we'll call them your talent, getting them on this base level understanding of what bad noise is and what good noise is, how loud is your AC, things like that. And if you could get that understanding, it becomes easier. But as far as the equipment setup goes... Like I said, Ralph, for instance, has his Elgato that he can actually show us his camera shot. That in and of itself is probably the most helpful thing with Ralph's setup for us. Because without that, it's like, yeah, it looks fine on your webcam that's at a different angle and doesn't show us exactly what we're looking at, but it looks like you're lit. So I think being able to see the actual camera shot is a huge thing. Now I know like we could do this right here too, where we're both on webcams. And we could adjust things as needed. I know we both have some sort of lighting around us that we could tweak. If I'm seeing something, I think it's my job in that situation as a producer to notice those fluctuations in lighting and stuff. But getting that good understanding on your part, if you're the producer, of what a good maybe three-point lighting setup is or even a two-point lighting setup is and where things need to be, that's super helpful. Even if it's just a video from a cell phone, getting a good look at whatever the room is is super important too. So like for Ralph, like he said, he just redid his studio. So we've seen it all. Like he's been excited to show us his studio and we know what walls look like this and how wide they are, where doorways are, all that. But having a sense of the room when you can't actually be in the room is super helpful as well. I think the big one that we've figured out lately is the audio. I mean, that's always the challenge and you can't make things too complicated when you aren't there to help them. And Ralph went on a road trip and before that road trip, we got him on those new DJI mics that are basically plug and play. You just plug it in and put the other side under your shirt and that works with your phone and the camera. I think that's really helped with the audio quality quite a bit, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Because before we had options, <laughs> which which is a good and a bad thing. That's a blessing and a curse. We had a shotgun mic that was available. I think we referred to it as our dead mouse mic. And I think it might've been one of those little road mics. We had a few different lobs we could have chosen from, and hopefully one of them works. There are all these variables with audio that you don't think about when you're on site because you're in control. But yeah, I mean, to your point there, that DJI mic was honestly a game changer for content creation because I think you have one too, which I've been able to use. It really is plug and play. And the fact that you can plug it into your phone, it's plug and play there. You could plug it into Ralph Sony A6400. It's plug and play there. It eliminates so many variables with just the audio itself. We'd periodically run into issues with audio peaking or something, and we have no clue until we get the footage. So then that became this thing where we had to start testing ahead of time. And it's like, hey, Ralph, can you record a clip? Just 30 seconds or something, just talking, checking your mic. Okay, can you upload that to Google Drive? Okay, let me wait for it to process. 
yeah, it's peaking. Can you do it again? <laughs> so it eliminates so much time and hassle. And that's where those mics have come in clutch for us, for sure. And we had that hissing issue for a long time that we could never like identify and simplifying stuff helped eliminate that. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think the hissing issue was because we were running his A6400 with the dummy battery power supply, but then it was like a wired lav. So you're getting all this power signal mixed with audio signal and like that alone can jack with audio so bad in certain situations. And I think that's what was happening with his audio. So it was like, no matter what lav we tried, there's always this hiss and you could remove it in post, but it removed so much of his frequencies as well, his speaking frequencies that it started to sound like he's in this metal can, heavily processed, and you don't really want that. If I'm creating a video, I would much rather have crystal clear audio than crystal clear video. That's just me personally, because if I hear bad audio, I start to check out. Yeah, it's too much. It takes too many calories to figure it, you know, to listen. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit kind of about the setup, the technology that we use to make sure we have eyes on the shot. Talk a little bit about directing remotely. Like, How do you work with Ralph or others? Yeah, directing remotely is fun. Directing in general is fun. I think the biggest thing is, this sounds counter to half of the shoots we have because we're shooting so much, but you've got to be prepared and intentional with what you're shooting on any given day. I think we have the luxury that all of us are on the same page at any given time. So we could go in without a really detailed game plan and get what we want and get what's needed easily enough. But yeah, I think the things that I would focus on are preparation. Let's say you have a customer and you're like, hey, I have this idea, but we need to shoot some video. Would you be up for jumping on Zoom and we'll do a remote video shoot? You get all set up, going in with a game plan. Maybe your first one, you got to expect that you're going to have to set up with them, especially if there's lighting and stuff involved and figure out the shot figure out framing, all that. Framing's a whole. We could do an episode on that. I have opinions. <laughs> but I, I think that's the thing. Going in with a game plan and going in with the expectations that the first try especially, it's going to be a little rougher. You're going to have a lot more to figure out, but then it's going to get smoother and smoother. So with Ralph, for instance, a lot of times we script videos. And this is kind of a tough point for us that we've had to figure out is if we have this long form five minute video that's scripted out, you know, your options are, okay, well, we could buy a teleprompter but is Ralph comfortable with the teleprompter? Because he's going to be the one running it. So then do you get him a foot pedal? You just keep adding on these questions. And what we found is Ralph's more comfortable, for instance, without a teleprompter. He doesn't mind it, but Ralph, if you give him an idea of what you want said, he's got it. He's good. So a lot of times we'll break it down short sentences at a time. If it is something we want verbatim, it's like, hey, read this or repeat this verbatim. If it's not, I'll read through it and say, hey, here's the general idea we want to convey in this. If there are any stats or numbers that are in it, that it's like, we do have to say this, you make that clear. And I think we're very blessed with how great of a speaker Ralph is, honestly. There aren't many people who can pull that off with us saying like, hey, here's the general idea. And then he just nails it by riffing. So that's a big thing. Preparation. I think just being comfortable with pushing people around too, for lack of a better way to say it, that's a big part of it for me is I used to work for the Thunder and one of the things I hated the most was when I'd have to go interview fans. When I first started, I'd have to just run around with this giant broadcast camera on my shoulder and a microphone, one man banning this. And I'd just have to stop people in their tracks and say, hey, do you mind if I ask you a few questions? It's going on the website. Half the time they're like, no, I'm here to watch the game. Can I go to my seat? It's like, yeah, okay. So I had to break out of this discomfort, I guess, and realize, okay, I'm not just a cameraman here. I'm producing this. I'm going to go back and edit it. So I'm the editor too. I'm doing everything. I have to own this and I have to be a little more aggressive with it probably. So you still do that politely. You're not like a jerk about it. You're not hitting people in the face of the microphone. But there was this level of discomfort that I had to get over. And that carries into this remote shooting too, where it's like, you don't want to waste anybody's time and you need to get stuff done. So you do have to drive the production like crazy. And I think a lot of that comes with, we keep using Ralph as an example. So sorry, Ralph, <laughs> you're, you're a guinea pig for this episode. If Ralph says something and it's like, oh, he left out something. It's like, hey, 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 stop. We need to redo this line. You forgot these two words, but they're actually really important. It's nothing bad. Your goal as a producer is to get what you need and to make sure your talent's presented in the best light, their business is presented in the best light, the product is presented in the best light, and that your end product 
is also presented in the best light. So that's your goal. And that's where you do have to get out of this discomfort and own the fact that your finished product has to be XYZ. Right. And it's easy to push fans who you're never going to see again, but pushing the big boss who writes all of our checks. It's just knowing your talent, building the trust with them. And Ralph hopefully has trust in us that we're not going to make him look like a fool up there. (laughs) I I hope after five years that maybe there's some trust there. Yeah, but it can be challenging. And I think that's one of the things that we've really had to work a lot on and especially remote where you don't necessarily have as much control over exactly what they're going to say is like how to approach getting them to say what you want from different angles. So sometimes we try to have him memorize things and repeat them, but that's really not a Ralph thing. Ralph is very much like give us, give me either a line or a talking point that I can riff off of. And I think one of the things that we found is to be like really successful is kind of asking Ralph questions that he can answer. That way he doesn't have to think about how to say something. He can answer in a really authentic way, which especially with this being more social media focused, that authenticity coming through, you know, really shows that we aren't really selling stuff. We're just really talented people trying to do our best and just answer in a way that builds trust with our audience. Yeah, that's a good point. Because I think the thing that I know about myself is I'd much rather be on the backside of a camera than in the front. So for whoever is on camera, especially if you're first time getting a client to shoot something, for instance, there's going to be discomfort on their end too. If it's your first time producing like that, there's going to be discomfort for you. So there is this element where it's like, there's no human connection, but there has to be a human connection. And I think to your point, that interview style of getting content is perfect. It has worked really well for us. And I think it makes it so much easier to just turn it into a conversation than some commercial production. It relieves a lot of the stress or the anxiety that comes with, okay, like I've got to nail this. Everything has to be perfect. Genuinely starting off like, man, how's your day been? You start to build up to this line of questioning that is actually geared towards getting what you want and what you need out of them. And that's a huge thing. Building rapport is a huge thing for sure. We've been around Ralph long enough that like we could hop on a call and small talk goes on for days because we actually care about each other. And we've built this relationship where it's like, we can have these conversations about kids and life and guitars and whatever it may be, mustaches. We can have those conversations as we're getting into like the real meat of the shoot. And I think that helps a lot. Being able to break the ice is a huge thing. And that interview style definitely helps that. And I was just thinking about where I picked up that skill was back when I was like shooting reality TV pilots. That was just the way I'd always get stuff. I'd just interview, ask questions, progressively get deeper, more personal. And then when they said a nugget that I knew it was going to be in the edit, I would just say, okay, say that again, but like this. And because they're already in that mode, it was really easy to get them to say that line how you wanted. And I think that's something we've done pretty well with Ralph and getting the things that we need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's true. One of the things that stuck with me from high school newspaper was when you're interviewing somebody, always allowing space after your question and after their answer. Like you're saying, it allows you time to listen and pick up things. It also creates this tension for the person you're interviewing too. So this is just my little interviewing tip. Create that tension at the end of an answer by not responding immediately. And they will almost always feel like they're not done. So I'm going to keep talking. In some of my interviews that I've done like with The Thunder and elsewhere, that's how I've gotten some of the best sound bites out of them is because they chose to elaborate out of this tension and gave me more than I asked for. And it just creates great content that way. We think through like the psychology of that. When you ask somebody a question, they prepare on how they're going to answer. So they know, here's what I'm going to say. Here's my sound bite. And then when you don't give them a stopping point, then it's like, oh, I've finished what I thought I was going to say. Now I got to think on my feet and come up with something else. And they're less likely to be protective of what they're going to say. They're going to get a little bit deeper. Yep, exactly. So we've kind of covered the whole like directing and producing remotely. Let's talk about how do we get the footage and how do we edit and QC and yeah. get feedback. As far as getting the footage, we use Drive for pretty much all of our stuff these days. We've tried a few other things. We used Box, not Dropbox, but Box. I think we also used Dropbox for a few customers along the way as well. A lot of times we used whatever the customer had set up when we were client-facing. But for us... send you a terabyte drive. In the... Oh my gosh, I still have that. That was a two terabyte drive. It's somewhere. It's still labeled. <laughs> I think it might be on my Xbox at the moment. I think one of the kids put it there. So it's kind of hit or miss, but we've primarily with our marketing stuff been living out of Google Drive. And that's been working well for us. We just started using frame.io, which I believe Adobe owns now. 
I had used that years back. And then Shintara, one of our editors, was like, hey, we should use this. It's like, yes, I loved it. Let's do it. So we're starting to use that again. And if you don't know what Frame is, go check it out. I mean, for reviewing content, that's absolutely one of the best tools I've found along my journey of producing content. It allows you to do a lot of cool stuff like timestamp comments, click on the frame to pinpoint or highlight certain things, certain elements. So definitely go check that out. So a lot of our process, it goes into drive, it goes into frame, and then we schedule it. We use Metricool to schedule a lot of our social posts, or it gets uploaded directly or sent back through drive to whoever it needs to end up to. Yeah, that's the very condensed version of how we work. Yeah, I think we ended up back on drive. So we've taken this long journey. I'm sure there's much better production specific clouds out there. But because tier 11 runs everything on drive, that's where we started. And then we wanted to be clever on the creative team. And then we moved over to Box. We could have our own separate thing. I think at the time, Box was one of the only ones that had like file streaming, which made it a lot easier for our team of remote editors to all access the same projects on their desktop without having to download it each time. But the thing we ran into with Box is I'm pretty sure they have a five gigabyte limit for file size. And because we were doing these longer shoots with Ralph, we kept running into this issue where we couldn't upload the footage. And I don't believe that Drive has that limit. I don't, I'm sure they have a limit. I just don't know what it is. We regularly have stuff in there that's like 5 to 10 gigs. A lot of these sorts of recordings, but definitely our Ralph shoots because we're always shooting in 4K. Those files get massive. Some of our content that we produce is an hour-long podcast, and we have to upload a full episode. So that just because of the length of the video alone, those push like seven, eight gigs regularly. And that's fairly compressed too. That was the limit though. I think Box was five gigs and I don't think they've gotten rid of that yet. I could be wrong. Why do we shoot in 4K? So we shoot with 4K. If you think about it, it's basically to allow a lot more flexibility. So I used to do this a lot before 4K was mainstream. When I was working at a church, we had... Canon 7Ds, which I still have. You saw it a few weeks back. It's ancient now, but still does the job. So we would shoot in 1080 knowing that everything we output is going to be in 780. And essentially what that would do is if we were shooting an interview, for instance, we shoot in 1080, we frame it a little wider than usual, not much wider, but just a little wider. And we could cut in and out with our 1080 footage in a 720 sequence. So a one camera shoot turns into a two camera shot video, essentially. So that's kind of why we do it here, but with the mindset of social videos. So we start to think different aspect ratios now. So allowing margin with a 4K video where there's a little bit more headroom, a lot more on the sides, you can potentially frame it in a way where that allows you to create your vertical videos as well without having to get real creative with it and scale things weird or cover a background or create frames so you can use the footage. That's why we do that. It allows more flexibility with shots and essentially gives you the ability to create different shots using one chunk of footage. Yeah, so if we're talking about framing a little bit, traditionally, bottom of the frame would be like belly button or so, leaving headroom. Now, how do we frame it with Ralph so we can get this stuff? Yeah, I think that's still the case. Probably giving a little more headroom and you don't want to expand it too much. Like we're not shooting at his knees or anything. But I think belt line, for me, typical framing when I would shoot stuff, not worrying about getting two shots was somewhere between chest and belly button is my bottom of frame. And then how we're framed here, it's hard to say what the distance would be, but you want a little breathing room at the top of the head. That's just how I would do it. Think of everything in your rule of thirds, for instance, like my head here takes up the top two thirds, basically, because I've got a giant head. And then my shoulders and chest take up the bottom third. So that's typically how I would approach it is thinking through thirds. So if I'm taking a wider shot, belly button to just over my head, my head is probably in the top third. My chest is probably in the middle third. Torso is probably in the bottom third. So it hasn't changed much when we're shooting to get these two shots. You're probably just going to go a little wider. Because you don't want your hero shot, like your main shot that you're actually getting to be so awkwardly wide that you can't use that on its own. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'd probably pull a little bit wider personally, just so that for the really extreme vertical stuff, you have a little bit of playing room. And with 4K, you can always punch in to get the crop that you want. Yeah, and you can always get creative with it too. I've been known to slap a GoPro on a shoe mount on top of whatever camera I'm shooting on. So that gets me my wide shot. And then I could just zoom in, do whatever I want with my DSLR. And that's my camera too. It works-ish. The shoe mount is the thing on top of a camera, not something that you include to your toes. Yeah, not on your shoes. That would be a bad shot. (laughs) 
Unless you were playing soccer. That'd be pretty sweet. That'd be pretty sweet. <laughs> it just felt like a rabbit hole was about to open up right there. It was. The creative minds. It's like, oh, we could do something cool with soccer. So we talked a little bit about Frame. How have we been using that? How's that working? Are we using it to its full potential? No, and I tend to be a believer that we don't use anything to its full potential. And if we do, we probably shouldn't be using it. That's just my personal mindset towards almost any tool that's out there. I think that's also why you see new tools getting developed is because there are people who realize something either has been used to its full potential or isn't remotely close. So they develop a way to use it even further. So no, I don't think we are using Frame to its full potential just yet. I know you can use Frame basically as your file storage as well. You know, you can do versioning in there. So you've got this like catalog of different edits of a single video with comments connected to each. But you can use it as your file delivery system too. So if, let's say I've got an editor across the world making a video for me, they can upload that there. And that's just our connection point between the editor and between myself. Frame is where files live. It's where conversations happen regarding feedback. And then once it's approved, I can mark it approved and download it from there and put it wherever I need to. Or I can just provide whoever needs it a link to frame and they can download it. So there's a lot you can do in there. I'm more curious and ignorant when it comes to because Adobe bought it, what connections are there with the entire Adobe suite. I'm pretty sure they have a plugin. I think they've always had a plugin for Premiere where it like auto uploads to frame. Yeah. See, and there you go. It might bring, I, mean, I haven't used this in years, but it would bring in comments into your Premiere timeline. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. But I think it's a pretty good point about not having to use these tools to their maximum potential. You should always start with the end in mind. Like, what's your end goal here? And do the easiest things possible to get there without overcomplicating it. Yeah, I think of a time where I got really into Element 3D came out for After Effects. That was through Video Copilot, I think. And I got really into it. And this was when I was working for the Thunder. So it's like, I'm going to make some freaking sick graphics for all this stuff we're doing. And I did. They were really good, I'm sure a lot of sports editors would look at them and be like, yeah, these aren't making it on ESPN's broadcast, but whatever, you you did fine. But looking back on it, and even while I was there, after it was done, it got old, played out a little bit. And then I was like, why did I make this 3D? Like, I I don't need to do this. I could have accomplished the goal so much easier, so much faster by just doing it this way instead. So yeah, there is something to be said for that, for sure. Yeah, I know having... Shintaro come in has really helped us simplify things where we were maybe hadn't adapted to do a more simple way. I think particularly around captions, right? Yeah. Captions have always been a, a challenge here just because Facebook at one point in time, we had to put captions on everything and captions take time or they used to at least. Yeah. And that's been an ongoing debate. I think the entirety of our careers here, Tom, is do we need to bake captions into videos? And I don't know that we have an answer to this day. Depends on the platform, I'd say now. And gone are the days where you have to hand do captions within Premiere. The process used to be you like send it over to Rev, they would do a transcription, then you'd have to get that STL file back and bake those captions in to the edit themselves. But I think the latest we've been using now is CapCut. Yeah, before we get into CapCut, I think the cool thing has been seeing some of the platforms develop their own auto caption features. So like you said, you used to have to upload like the SRT file into the platform as the subtitle reference, or you pull that into Premiere or whatever you're editing in and actually hard code captions in. So much fun doing that. So yeah, it's been cool to see platforms just have the ability now where they don't even need the file. Their system is just that good where it detects it and can auto-generate captions. But that's where, to your point of platform-specific captions, TikTok, Instagram, Reels, Shorts... The short form content is where I see a lot more captions these days, not on long form content. And CapCut's been a really cool tool because it's got an auto caption feature, which I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago on the show that has been really impressive. Their auto generated captions have been on par with sites like Rev.com as far as the quality, the grammar, all of that. And it's been interesting too trying to test it because, you know, we're a worldwide team. So there are quite a few different accents that we work with when it comes to content from our team. So it's been cool to push it with certain accents and see how it pulls and CapCut's doing a great job. It makes it super easy. But yeah, Shintaro's helped simplify that even more. I think maybe this comes back to my English and newspaper days of wanting to be perfectly grammatically correct. And Shintaro was like, why don't we just go all caps and not have punctuation? It's like, what? 
It's like, yeah, then you don't have to worry about this. It takes away your revisions. Should be good. You're just checking that the words are correct. Brilliant. Let's do that. <laughs> you guys are using way too many fancy colors and fonts. Like, here are the simple <laughs> rules that you need to follow for captions. Yeah. Or are they? Oh, yeah. So a lot of our captions, and it's harmless stuff, but it was interesting talking to him. We were using our brand colors. So we were using the blue and the pink that if you're watching, you see here on this branding. But we were using tier 11 brand colors for our captions. So it'd be white captions, black stroke, and any highlighted words would be the blue or the pink. Yeah, nothing. It's pretty innocent. Shintaro was like, why are you doing this? The standard is highlight words with yellow, positive words or words related to finances, green, negative words, red, this is what everybody's doing. And he got into this psychological aspect of it. Like if you're scrolling through TikTok and you're seeing all these videos with white captions, with yellow highlighted words, you're just scrolling through and it becomes this stream of similar content, even though it might not be similar. The vibe of the content because of the captions is the same. Then here we are popping up with this flaming hot pink word in the middle of the screen. And he's like, that kind of snaps people out of their scroll stream, I guess you could call it. And he was like, if you were to switch to the yellow highlights that everybody else is doing, it keeps them in that sort of, I don't know, subconscious realm of scrolling where they're going to consume your content because there's nothing that really snapped them out of that. So that was an interesting idea and just revelation. That's just a good reminder as a content creator, whether directing and producing with Ralph or your own stuff, you got to remember who your end audience is and and now the audience isn't you people who are engaging and viewing the videos, like what's going to make them engage with it longer. And that's likely to be more native. Even if you want to grab their attention, like nobody wants their attention grabbed. They want it to be engaged with intrigued, all those psychological triggers that are going to keep you watching content, not bright pink highlights. Yeah. So then that raises the never ending unanswered question of how do you grab people's attention without grabbing their attention? Good content. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't say it's manipulative, but sneaky. You got to have sneaky content. Yeah. Matthew makes a good point here. Short form with captions can be consumed without sound if need be. Yeah, that was something we heard a lot thinking back, I don't know, three years ago, four years ago, maybe, is we heard from Facebook a lot too, specifically just design with sound off in mind. That's where I think this idea of every video needs captions even if it's a two-minute video, even if it's a five-minute video, captions have to be on the video and available because people aren't going to have their sound up. And I think that's changed as we've explored the ideas of intention-based or interruption-based advertising, to talking through advertising specifically. Of intention-based, I think it's safe to assume if somebody's getting on YouTube and typing in, how do I change brake pads on a Suburban? They're obviously going there to find out how to do that. They're probably going to watch with sound on. They're not just going to watch a video and captions aren't going to be much help. But if you're advertising somebody on Facebook, it's a very different thing because you're just trying to catch their attention there. So I don't know if brake pads would still be relevant there, but your video for brake pads on Facebook is going to look very different from a video on brake pads on YouTube. And I think it all comes back to the intention of your viewer. So yeah, short form, definitely captions, I think are where they have to be there because that's where people are just scrolling, you know, maybe at their desk at work or in the bathroom or something, you know, but if they're getting on YouTube to watch a 20 minute video, they're getting locked in and they're there to watch that video. Yeah, I think it's definitely true, Matthew. It just depends on the platform, right? If you're putting videos on LinkedIn, you definitely want to have captions because you don't want somebody to have to turn on their audio at work to watch a video on LinkedIn. Why are you on social media? But if you're on something like TikTok, I mean, I know it's pretty standard for captions to be on most of the videos, but TikTok is natively audio on. But comparing that to Reels, Reels, as they go through your feed, is audio off. It really depends on the platform. I generally think that outside of main YouTube videos, anything shorts or on any other platform should have captions baked in. I think there's a lot of flexibility in captioning now, too. You have to be like so pedantic in particular about the quality of the captions, but I think you have a strongly disagreeing opinion on this, but I don't know if viewers really care so much about how the auto captions work, if how accurate they are. You kind of just accept that, oh, that's just the name of the game now, where sometimes captions generated by TikTok or CapCut or anything else might be wrong, but that's not really the point. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think if it's auto-generated on Facebook or something, for instance, does the point get across? Great especially if it's for an ad, does the point get across? Perfect. As long as it's not 
totally botching a business name or a product name or there's some weird legal implication behind it getting a word wrong or something like that. For sure. I think when you're making the captions yourself, I'm a control freak. So yeah, you're right there. Yeah. So see what else we got here at some other tools. I don't know how much we publicized it, but back in January, Tier 11 bought Perpetual Traffic from Digital Marketer. And with Perpetual Traffic came a backlog of like 400 episodes that we're trying to work through to get up on the Perpetual Traffic YouTube channel. And you know, if there's one thing that is very time consuming, it's cutting back and forth between cameras in an hour long podcast. And this is a tool that I saw fairly recently, and then we started testing and that's called Autopod. Basically, see if I can share my screen here. Yeah, so here's the Autopod. And basically what it does is it automatically cuts between your different camera tracks using the audio tracks. So you can see here it automatically cuts through and being that that's one of the biggest time consuming parts of editing podcasts, you know, something I'm really curious to see how well we can or how much faster we can speed up the process. Yeah, and Shintaro's been using this as he's been working on perpetual traffic stuff. I think it was just the other day he was saying it's been a huge time saver because that really is just such a chore making all those cuts. It's not necessarily the hardest thing, but it's so tedious. That's really cool. I mean, what you saw there, if you're watching this and not listening, is it's basically cutting up footage in the timeline in nearly real time. There's a rendering period when you hit start, but then once it goes, you're seeing the cuts take place. So that's a really cool tool. I really want to get a 10 camera shoot to happen just for the sake of testing that out and seeing what what it does. I'm all for those time-saving tools. Yeah, Matthew chimes in here. Uh, Can you make Autopod feel softer? It's cutting feels frantic. Good question. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I think that's kind of up to the editor after the fact. Like this is, if you think about it, something an assistant editor would do is cutting up these bigger chunks. And it is still a machine that lacks human emotion probably. And yeah, I think For I think as you go in and you start to clean up the edit, pull out the clips that you want, you can probably mess around with the transitions and giving some breathing room. Yeah, because keep in mind, Autopod, it's going to sense if I were to just be like, yeah, in the middle of Tom talking, it's going to pick that up. So anytime there's this subtle noise that's enough for it to sense, basically, you might end up with a cut there and it might not make sense. So yeah, I wouldn't say that Autopod is ever a hit start, finish, hit export type of system. It might be. I mean, that might work well for you. And if you're trying to like mass produce content, maybe that is your option. But I think it is. It's like having a virtual editor to give you a first draft. That's how I view it. And it's useful in that sense. But I agree, Matt. I think it can feel frantic if you allow it to feel frantic. What would be cool is if it was trainable. It reviews how you fixed it and then adapts. Yeah, I think and this is an overused rule, but the 80-20 rule, I think this gets 80% of the way there just by cutting up back and forth between cameras. Yeah, Matt said that's what he sees at market as turnkey. Yeah, but is anything really turnkey? As a creative, is anything really turnkey? I mean, I think you take AI, for instance, and you're trying to get, we were talking about Ralph's captioning fun of saying tier 11, and it came back with the caption of terror lemon got on Slack. I'm like, Tom, we need a visual of this. Let's dump this in AI and get a terror lemon. AI is a great example of, yeah, you could use it to get first try whatever you want and take that for what it is. But I don't know, in my mind as a creative, you're always going to dig a little deeper. You're always going to try and push a little further and you're always going to want to do more. And I think a lot of that too comes back to Autopod might be great if the vibe of your podcast, for instance, is high energy it's a podcast, but if it's the conversation is high energy, back and forth talking, maybe it's dramatic or people yelling. I think there are going to be instances where maybe those cuts do make a lot more sense. If it's me and Tom hanging out here talking about content creation, it's probably going to be a lot slower cuts. And I think that is where it's the editor's responsibility to not just rely on Autopod to make cuts and to go back and review it and make sure it's got the feel that you want it to have that matches your overall experience you want viewers to have. Yeah, I was trying to find some of our Terror Lemon. <laughs> this one. Terror Lemon, it's like my favorite new not band name. I'm, I'm going to claim it as a band name and start a band. Yeah, here's some of the Terror Lemons that Mid Journey came up with. They're less. They're some of the less aggressive ones. There were some pretty hardcore metal ones. But yeah, those are cute. Those look like they'd be on stickers. Yeah, this is more like a pop rock kind of Terror Lemon. <laughs> 
versus like a. I've always envisioned a Godzilla esque giant monster lemon stomping through a suburban neighborhood with fog surrounding it and citizens running away in the foreground. I'll show you this one then too. Yeah, yeah, these are, that's getting closer. I think that's when I put in, make it for a speed metal band. <laughs> I mean, honestly, some of those look like they could have been on an Iron Maiden shirt or something. But to your point, Matthew, like I think this is something to keep in mind if you are either leading a creative team or you are the creative is having realistic expectations of what these tools can do. We'll often get suggestions from other people on the team. Like, have you tried this tool? It's supposed to make your life 10 times easier and give you the output is significantly better. And it never lives up to those expectations. And I think that's whether you're using something like Autopod or ChatGPT, it's really using it within the context of how it can better help your workflow without expecting it to do all the work for you. Because at least at this point, none of these are soup to nuts finishing your work. What is that phrase? I've never heard that phrase before. Soup to nuts? Is that a California thing? My dad's never said it. He's from California. So I don't know. I've never heard that before. Sounds like the album name for Terry Lemon, their new single. Yeah, according to Wikipedia, <laughs> Soup to Nuts is an American English idiom that conveys the meaning of from beginning to end, derived from the description of a full course dinner. I, mean, I feel sad for you if your dessert is nuts, but... I know. <laughs> Man, what was the main course then? Oh, Deacon's chiming in. Uh-oh. The OG creative from Beer 11. Oh, man. Thanks for that, Deacon. I'm okay with that phrase not making it to Oklahoma. <laughs> I'm going to go around saying it and see how many people give me weird looks. I'm not going to give any context either. I'm just going to walk around saying soup to nuts to myself. You got to train the kids to say it. That could backfire, though, but I probably will. <laughs> what other tools are you using these days that are making your life a little bit easier? I'm pretty old school, so most of my work is done in the Adobe Suite, and then... <laughs> Deacon's coming in hot with the old thunder burns. Yeah, we'll make a run at the playoffs again at some point, Deacon. No, I'm pretty old school. Just use Adobe Suite for the majority of stuff. CapCut's become my new best friend for captioning and editing vertical videos, basically. Anything like shorts or reels or TikToks. CapCut's great at that, especially for mobile editing. That's what I use on my phone. If I'm doing any video editing on my phone, it's CapCut. I've tried other stuff, and CapCut's just the easiest so yeah, outside of that, I mean, it's the standard stuff we've talked about, chat GPT a lot to get descriptions for stuff or just as a sounding board for ideas, research, whatever that might be. Mid-journey, just to come up with pictures of lemons playing guitar, stuff like that. So how about you? Is there, any, is there anything outside of Autopod that you're using these days? I really like Figma as my brain dumping board. I mean, I've used Google Sheets, Google Docs mind mapping tools and i find figma to be like the way that represents my brain the most cluttered (laughs) (laughs) a giant blank slate with a bunch of stuff scattered all over yeah because you can mind map there you can pull in imagery or inspiration into a never-ending board you can even create tables within it so you can organize some shooting stuff within it and then export it to where you need to i find that to be like the best way for me to get all the different pieces into the same spot because it doesn't require a whole lot of organization or knowing how to use the tool. Yeah, that's true. I forgot about Figma. We just used that, what, like a month ago to really lay out our production process. And it's it's always funny getting in there because you could do it as a group. So you could get everybody log in and everybody can add and tweak and stuff, which is one of the cool collaborative features. And I think that's why it's great for us too, is just being remote. That's one of the ways we can actually collaborate in real time on something physical, I guess, for lack of a better word. But we just did a flow chart with that session. It was you, me, and Shintaro, our social media editor. And it was such a great way to collaborate and really nail down, okay, this is the production flow of what perpetual traffic edits are going to look like and what social content for Tier 11 is going to look like. So yeah, if I forgot about that one. That's a really good tool. And we only use the free version. What could we even do if we paid for it? I don't know. Not using it to its full potential. The other one, I just use ChatGPT for so much. One of the things that I had to do was download all of the old PT podcast episodes and I had ChatGPT help write a script so I could just run it and download them all. And then I did something similar where I had it write me a a little Python code where it would take all these episodes, upload them to OpenAI's transcription so we can transcribe them all. And with 400 episodes, that had to be something programmatic that way. 
I've used chat. I've talked about this all the time, but chat GPT to really kind of hone in on personas and like organize and think of other things that might be relevant to the persona that we're targeting with our marketing. My favorite, of course, is using that then to write a prompt that I could throw into mid journey to personify that persona with an image. A lot of personification happening. Oh, okay. So Deacon says he has more questions for us in the future, but Zach takes priority. Another creative. More Just like, tell Zach to jump on here. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't turn into a four-hour pod because I love talking to that guy. I like talking to you too, but I talk to you all the time. Tell me how you feel about Jira, our new production tracking tool. <laughs> you know my opinions. I'm pure creative brain, so I understand the importance of good production management, and I absolutely loathe having to do management of anything like that. So we've landed on Jira now. We've started with Trello years back, the production tracking in its simplest form, maybe ended up on Asana. Now we're on Jira, which is very similar to Asana is what I've gathered. I like it. I think it's cool. We've also introduced that in the midst of introducing Scrum across the agency. So I don't know that I've had a full chance to wrap my head around Jira just yet because there's a lot to wrap my head around at the moment in the agency, which is wonderful. It's super cool that we're making these changes and I absolutely see an immense value in all of it. So I don't know, get back with me in a couple of weeks and I might have a better answer. That's just another tool for tracking production, right? I think the thing that we needed and we have now most is an ops person. Being a team of a duo of a creative person and an ops person is really game-changing for us. We used to have it back on the, creative, the client-facing creative team and that really helps keep track of things and move things through. Because if it's only creative people, then it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, I forgot I was doing that. Yep. One side of the brain at one time. <laughs> so my, Yeah, my big suggestion is it doesn't matter what your production tracking tool or product management tool is. It's having an ops person to keep track of it for you and to keep you on track. That and being intentional with it, it's great to have it. But if you aren't using it the way it's supposed to be used or the way that makes the most sense for your team... And it's worth as much value as you put into it. So Trello, for instance, I think Trello is great if you use it properly and don't overcomplicate it or dump way too much in there. To your point, I function so much better with somebody who can see this admin side of things while my brain is focused on other stuff. Cool. Well, we're right at the hour. If anybody has any more questions, nice. now is the last chance to drop them. Oh, we didn't talk about recording studios. Yeah, so that that's pretty simple. So we've got a couple that we use regularly and we've tried out a few. You can use Zoom, it works, but the quality of Zoom pales in comparison to a lot of the other options out there. So the two that we use most frequently <laughs> are Riverside.fm, I think. That's a great tool and it's pretty high video quality. I think it was their thing. And then we use, for these live streams, we use StreamYard. Both of those allow individual video files, if I remember correctly. And that was the big thing for us is when we do something like this live stream, and especially with the whole title of this live stream was a remote team content creation. Like, how do you do that? This is a tier 11 problem, probably getting people in one place at one time to record something can prove difficult when you're operating across so many time zones. So using something like Restream, StreamYard, Riverside, StreamYard is great because we can get individual video files out of this for everybody. So that allows us to have a lot of content that we can cut up or we can use this live stream that you're seeing now as content too. So this has been a really good tool for us. StreamYard is where we landed. Why did we switch from Restream? Do you remember? Uh, Restream didn't do individual files. The individual, okay, that's what it was. So. Yeah, StreamYard has been great. You could stream most everywhere, it seems like. Riverside, I don't think had the same live streaming capabilities. It does. <laughs> so, like, they're all slightly different, and we use them for different reasons. Riverside doesn't have really good plugins with social commenting. Yeah. yeah. I think there's more branding and stuff you could do in StreamYard as well. Yeah. I think Riverside's really for recording podcasts. And that's what we use it for. So we use Riverside for recording perpetual traffic. And then for this, and basically any sort of content creation, we typically use StreamYard. And that's so we can have this, this back and forth with our massive audience of I don't know, a couple dozen. But I think, and this is going all the way back to the simplicity idea of when you are working with somebody to get content from them, you want to keep it as simple as possible. So asking them to set up a big camera 
to get good quality is not likely to happen. Using something like Riverside or StreamYard, not only does it record individual video files, but it records them locally to their computer and uploads them later. Your video quality isn't dependent on the quality of their internet. It's just dependent on the quality of their camera. So my suggestion is if you are shooting something remote, whether a big shoot with somebody's camera plugged in or a one-on-one interview where you're getting good content is to use something like StreamYard where you can have them record it locally and it'll automatically upload it later. Yeah. And what's cool is Nick from our team was actually talking about this last week, I think, is that there are people out there now too, where if you need help with just a video setup, there are people out there now who will jump on a call with you and help you set up your webcam and get framed correctly, find the best lighting in your area, and they'll coach you through it. So yeah, simplicity is key, especially like when you're talking podcasts, getting guests on, you don't want to waste their time. Maybe you have 30 minutes with them with 10 minutes before and five minutes after or something like that. You want it to be as easy as possible where they could just sit down, turn their camera on and just have a conversation. So yeah, that's where these platforms are great. And the fact that webcams are only getting better and better, it seems like. And the fact, I mean, you could use your iPhone as your webcam now, which is cool. StreamYard has been our friend, I think, as far as mass producing content and the amount of content you could get out of something like this. We've used it a few times too, not to keep this conversation going too long. Internal conversations where it's like, hey, we need content around this. Can the four of you jump into StreamYard? We're just going to hit record and then we're going to hang out and talk. You know, maybe it's Tom asking questions to prompt the conversation or you have a moderator in that group. And from there, because it is recording locally for everybody, you're getting so much content made available to you just from sitting down and having a conversation that you could honestly have in Slack. If you really wanted to get down to it, you could just have a DM or jump into a, to a channel specific to the conversation. But the fact that you can jump on here and get video content out of that, and then you've got however many people you have, individual recordings, is just killer. It's a great way to gather content. Yeah, agreed. Well, I think we've gathered enough content for today. <laughs> I hope so. Amazing transitions, Tom. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. And now to the CTA. If you enjoyed this conversation and like to talk about creative or performance marketing or anything else that we've talked about, be sure to like and subscribe to this channel and share it with your coworkers and friends. And if you have creative needs for your digital marketing, head over to tier11.com and we'd love to chat with you. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah, thanks, Tom. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Customer Acquisition Show. Take the next step toward growing your customer base. Visit tier11.com and request your customized growth plan. And remember to hit the follow button so you can be notified of future episodes. You know why most agencies fail in the first 30 days? Well, they don't do the work beforehand. And they realize once they start managing ad accounts and doing all the things that working alongside businesses like yours in order to get you the results that you want, they waste a whole lot of time in the first 30, 60, 90 days, and they're fumbling around in the dark. That's because they have not used what we do over at Tier 11, what we refer to as the strategic growth plan. Now, a strategic growth plan is a deep dive into what has gone on inside your ad accounts and your business with all the important financial metrics that you need in order to scale and grow. We analyze all that, come up with a plan that's 30, 60, 90 days out, and then we use that as our game plan once we start actively managing ads, once we start doing our creative research, once we start doing all our after-the-click extensive tracking on dev, but the plan is the key. And if you have an agency that is failing you right now, it's probably because they don't have a plan. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So get your strategic growth plan over at tier11.com, hit the big pink button, fill out the application, and we'll be in touch with you on how we can help you scale and grow your business through getting more customers and increasing their lifetime value. That's all we do at Tier 11. Head on over to tier11.com. Get your growth plan today.